Welcome to Plus Delta. Ready for your mind to be boggled? Our guest this week, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and holds a PhD in biomedical sciences. Research interests include in drug discovery for infectious diseases, psychedelics, and focuses on how data can help improve society. He is more concerned about involving ideas versus being right. So enter in a new world of understanding. We welcome Adonis McQueen. Remember, you can find us at Plus Delta Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and and Twitter. Now let's start the show. Adonis, it's been eons, light years. I'm so glad to have you on. And also we have Brian. Wait, hang on. With light years, you're you're aware that that's distance, not time, right? (laughs) What is time? (laughs) We've already gotten into the philosophical meta. What is time? How would you define time? It's time. I think time is an abstract concept. It is man-made, okay, Brian. But, so, but distance is not. <laughs> How do you measure a light year then? It, a right, a light year is yeah. It's like a speed in or a measure of distance. You're supposed not to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm all sorry. Right, right. Welcome, Adonis. How are you doing? Uh, I am great. You all pulled the teacher out of me. That that's that's where my head goes. Yeah, Just like the, oh oh wait, I, I I know this thing. Let me let me help you. <laughs> yeah, you're speaking to two teachers here, so absolutely know exactly what you're feeling. It's like, oh, you might be confused. I must help you and tell you exactly how to get there. Exactly. <laughs> me, I lead horses to water and I don't force them to drink or let them drink. I let them decide what they should do because you know they need to learn how to make choices yep free will and all that right yeah and then that's why some yeah. of my students still argue with me that the earth is flat oh people are so, still doing that <laughs> on that genius note adonis can you introduce yourself <laughs> yes yes uh my name is adonis mcqueen um i hold a phd in biomedical sciences from university of south florida and I am also a graduate of the illustrious Florida A&M University, Go Rattlers, uh, Go Marching 100, Fall 99, um, gamer, philosopher, and musician and scientist. So, you know, you know, if anybody wants to give me a job, tell them to hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all in one package. I was going to say, it sounds like you have all kinds of talents. And I know we're going to focus more on like on your academic side, but something I did not know about you until you mentioned it is that you're a musician. What makes you a musician? Is it an instrument? Is it singing? What do you do? Oh, yeah. So uh, I played saxophone uh, all for uh, middle school, undergrad and high school for uh, about 12 yeah. years. Yeah. So marching 100. What that's saxophone? Uh, I played all of them, but I primarily played uh, alto and tenor. Oh, um, you're my favorite person. Yeah. I did all those things, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jazz band in high school and some in undergrad. Yeah. Um, played for the high school musical yeah it was it was a lot of fun it was it was great show yeah. a lot of fun and i then, loved uh, it when i started you're basically twins 
<laughs> yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, we're great. <laughs> yeah, it was when I started uh, working on my master's at FAMU that I kind of started pe uh, peeling off into video games and playing fighting games more. And as I played fighting games more, I played uh, music less. So I still, you know, I it's still. Yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of where my time went. I started focusing on grad school and gaming more because I wasn't in marching band anymore and I wasn't like playing with any of the bands. So it just kind of, just kind of fell off. But I actually. Speaking, mm -hmm. speaking about grad school, mm -hmm. actually, can you walk us through like your, at your academia life? How did you get into your profession and all that stuff? Let's just start from there. Okay. What was the whole thought process? So my initial desire upon entering college was actually to go to medical school. I was just like a lot of other um, young black STEM kids going to undergrad at either an HBCU or any college. Uh, you know, you want to go to med school. You, you know, you want to be a doctor. You want to do this. You want to do that. You know, thank Bill Cosby. Thank, you know, whatever show you saw on TV. Maybe you saw somebody who was a doctor. You know, went to school for med school. But uh, the MCAT did me in. Uh, I could not. I am not uh, the best at performing on standardized tests, I find. And so when I took the MCAT, I sat for it twice. And I got the same score twice, despite undergoing like capital and prep courses and all this other stuff. So looking at that kind of made me realize that perhaps medical school is not for me. And so uh, after I finished my master's at FAMU, I took some time off to figure out what I wanted to do. But while I was at FAMU working on my master's, I realized I was really good at teaching. So I figured, well, why don't I just teach in undergrad? I really like teaching. It's really a lot of fun. No, why don't what I just were, sorry, what were your undergrad and masters on? Oh, so my uh my bachelor's is in chemistry and my master's is in organic chemistry. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh so I was teaching those courses at Florida AM and in uh Tallahassee Community College in uh, mid uh two thousands, early twenty tens. And then I went to USF for grad school and that's when I met Romy and our our mutual friend Brian and everyone else down there, and that was a lot of fun hanging with those guys. I did grad school at USF for about six, six and a half years. And got my PhD in uh, biomedical science. So my research is primarily focused on drug discovery for infectious diseases uh, like malaria, HIV, things like that. And um, I'm also interested in data science and you know mental health drugs and psychedelic drug discovery and research as well. So when I actually watch you defend for your dissertation, I remember just sitting there and I was just like, first of all, I was so proud. I was just all like, yes, like you made it, you did it. Cause I just, I know so much preparation and frustration, all the work that you have put in to getting your PhD and doing your research. But I just know after the second slide, after you just introduced yourself and you went into your introduction, the next 30 to 45 minutes was a complete, like, what? Like, I just saw pictures. I saw graphs. I was all like, okay, all right, we got some squiggly lines. And, you know, I heard mitochondria, <laughs> and I was just all like, I know what that means. So, obviously, yeah, you know it's <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you, you are absolutely not alone in that sentiment, because... Uh, so I had friends uh, from high school and undergrad who were like watching the stream and it was and a lot of my friends were watching it and a lot of them had the same sentiment. My friend Jeremy, uh, he was saying, after you got past like the third slide, I was Googling every 30 seconds. What is primitive? What is this from Larry? What is this? What is that? <laughs> and, you know, my mom said the same thing, you know, sitting right there in the front row. 
I am not sure what happened after the second slide, but I understood the second one. <laughs> so, you know, and it, it's just the nature of these. Those are uh, those are talks designed to be highly technical, so you can show your committee you understand what you're talking about. You can propose a scientific idea or a hypothesis, and you can you know create a research process to defend it. You know, collect data, analyze it, make interpretations, things like that. All all that kind of runs into. Yeah, so you have to use all the the jargon of the field. right. You have to use a high technical jargon. Like so, mm -hmm. but. You know, if anybody asks me to give that presentation now to a room of, you know, 10-year-olds, I can definitely do that. So. so what what got you interested in that particular field of research to begin with? Well, so I actually was a very ambitious little kid because in addition to, you know, wanting to be a doctor, I also did want to do HIV research. Like, that was always one of my big things. Like, I want to cure AIDS. I want to do this. And, you know, this is kind of a testament to these uh, outreach programs that a lot of colleges do. We had uh, a group of med students and grad students visit my middle school from Washington University, St. Louis uh, School of Medicine. And they came in when we were doing our sex ed portion of life science. And they, we were talking about sexually transmitted diseases. And they came to give um, a short presentation about HIV. And for some reason, I was just completely fascinated by this thing. I'm like, this affects people and all these people are dying just because, you know, they want to have sex with each other. That's not right. I can't believe this. We have to do something about this. Like this is, I was like, yeah, this is going to be the thing that I do. And so even when they were talking, I was like, they had mentioned that um, there's a, actually a chemical with spermicide condoms can actually act as an anti-HIV agent. It can end up killing HIV. Uh, to an extent. And so I was like, well, why don't we just inject that into people? That seems to work great. And they were like, yeah, that would probably kill you before it killed the virus. So, you know, <laughs> even when I was in seventh grade, I was, you know, outsmarting our former president and thinking about what could kill viruses and things like that. So, yeah, except I wouldn't I mean, you can always just bleach, put, but, you know, I was gonna say, you can just always inject bleach to yeah, get you know, coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's definitely a, a seventh grader idea. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so that you're was a problem solver. Yeah, yeah, and that—that's what I really am in, in uh, mm -hmm. at the core. Is like I like to solve problems. I like picking. It's like a puzzle. I like picking it apart, figuring out how the various things work. Uh, that's also why I'm like really interested in data science too, because picking apart the data, figuring out how things work. That's another thing you mm -hmm. have to do in grad school. When you analyze data, you're you know you're looking for clues. You're figuring out what the data means and what uh, direction it can point you in for the next steps of your research. But yeah. See, it's funny because we have our signal of who's going to talk next. And I didn't see it from Jerome, but I saw like his mind like rolling. So I'm like, is he, is he going to say something? <laughs> and then he just said completely silent. I'm like, okay, maybe he's not going to say I'm trying anything. to formulate the question. And, <laughs> I, and my mind came off as like, so pretty and much he, the connection was that you just want everyone to have sex without transmitting diseases. <laughs> that i'm all like why not i mean look you know i was a seventh grader you know going through the throes of puberty people should be yeah. able to do this because i want to do it and not have to worry about this so right yeah let's solve this absolutely so yes i was trying to put that into a way that it didn't come off so 13 yeah. years old yeah, yeah exactly so adolescent so there you go thank you so 
Everyone will know that I am just a 31-year-old, um, <laughs> but really have a 12-year-old mind. Yeah, that's, I mean that that that's why we teach the younger kids, right? Because we're still in that mindset of like what little kids think like, right? Oh, everything every day is playtime <laughs> in my classroom. We we literally just play all day, and then they wonder, you know, <laughs> why students do so well in my classroom. But that's neither here or there. Um, right, let's let's talk, go into about the process into about the process. Uh-huh. Of okay, okay. Now, Brian, now you're just being <laughs> rude. <laughs> uh, since I have you on pause, I'm actually gonna interject with a question before Jerome takes us in a different direction. So, you mentioned when you originally thought about this, you mentioned, like, oh, well, why don't we just inject the spermaticide or however you say that properly? Because I probably just butchered it. And again, that was like the younger mindset. But now that you've done some of your research, what do you think is like the most fascinating thing that you learned? when you were doing that research or something that caught you off guard that you're like, Oh, that makes more sense than what I was saying as a seventh grader. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really cool question. Um, So unfortunately my experience with HIV research has been mostly limited to what I did in my postdoc. And that was only for a short time, like two years. So it's enough time to get to, you know, familiar with the field, but not really enough time to test these sort of kind of rigorous scientific questions that you may want to answer. That being said, um, the lab that I was working with in, so I had a postdoc with the Aractive program at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York, and it's out in the like North Central line, uh, close to Port Jefferson, places like that. But anyway, um, one of the in- really interesting things they were doing there is that uh, my boss at the time, and I'm sure she's still doing this now, was actually looking at these small, uh, cellular vesicles called semen exosomes. So um, to just kind of uh, put it in layman's terms, there are small globules or small little particles that um, bud off of cells. So just like imagine like a little circle coming off of a cell that hold okay. various materials to l- allow cells to talk to each other. So it's, one of the, so it's like, kind of like a cargo package to deliver a message to another cell. Okay, so, got it. Yeah, and all and you know various types of cells uh, make these materials uh, called exosomes. And she was looking at uh, specifically if we could use these exosomes to potentially treat HIV because it's it, they know that uh, semen exosomes actually have a uh, protective factor that inhibits HIV replication, which is kind of interesting because you know despite HIV being this rampant and crazy disease, it's actually really hard to infect you with HIV. Because um, not only do these exosomes offer a natural protective factor against HIV infection, but also HIV as a virus is really, really crappy. Like when it replicates 90 to 99% of the progeny is junk, it doesn't live. And it's only like that 1% that goes out. And, you know, even of that 1%, you have to have, you still have uh, some of those that aren't infectious and others that are. So that's kind of the reason why um, HIV takes so long to develop in your body is because even though you're shedding all this virus, the vast majority of it is crap and it has to infect your other cells. So it's, that's why it's like a gradual process after you're infected to where if you don't get treatment, you know, your immune system is compromised. You start getting um, common, well, not common, but like more rare diseases, things that, you know, shouldn't affect you because you have a working immune system, but does. 
uh, Kaposi sarcoma, the cancer is one of the hallmarks of it. You get pneumonia, things like that. That's And those kind of things are uh, indicators of full-blown AIDS. That's when the virus is just totally overtaking your immune system. So it's, it's really interesting when the ideas that people come up with, you know, just taking this natural product, exosomes, and using it as a potential treatment for HIV. I know that was a bit of a mouthful, I hope. <laughs> like, um, I hope so we have a sense. cell that makes a barrier, and then HIV is not that strong. But if we don't do anything about it, it becomes, it just replicates and then it just compromises our immune system. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Uh, instead of the barrier, just think of it as like a, um, oh, well, actually the protective factor, yeah, you could think of it as like a barrier to protect against HIV infection. But it's obviously not foolproof, you know, because, you know, the highest vector, or excuse me, the most efficient vector for transmitting HIV is semen. So. So cor- correct me if I'm wrong here, but things like HIV and AIDS, those are not, and I don't know if I'm going to wear this right, so definitely correct me, but they're not, in a sense, diseases themselves. They're just breaking down your immune system, and then something else is what can come and harm the, pe- the person that's infected with them? Right. So, you know, if we want to think about this in gamer terms, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> HIV is like a debuff. You know, it takes all of your resistances down to zero, so anything can just come along and thump you, and you die. Gotcha. And yeah, HIV in and of itself does not kill you. It just, you know, it just opens. Right, it opens you up. It's kind of like a catalyst. Yeah, yeah, just kind of takes everything down so that something else can come take you down. Gotcha. Which is actually, if you think about it, a really interesting testament to the immune system because you know. It just kind of shows how the immune system is working all the time to fight off right. these invaders. You know, when you don't wash your hands and you decide to eat something anyway, your immune system is going to work. Even if you're not sneezing and coughing and having an actual reaction, that doesn't mean your immune system is not working. Right. I was going to ask you, was there any myths or anything that you would like to debunk that is like typically in the science and health uh, medical uh drugs and sciences field that to our listeners, you know, that they become more well-rounded people. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're in the age of the internet and one of the, you know, (laughs) everything that happens, and this is where I'm going to get kind of philosophical, right? Everything kind of comes with this uh, trade-offs. So we have access, we have a modern day library of Alexandria at our fingertips. We can access the totality of human knowledge in seconds. But the flip side to that, the antithesis to that, is that we can also expose ourselves to a lot of misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. in seconds. And because of the nature of this beast and the markets and corporations that have built up around it, um, for various reasons that you know might be too long for us to get into here, uh, you get content that's filtered towards you that confirms your existing biases. And so... When you are constantly inundated with right. information that appeals to your biases, that appeals to your uh, thoughts, when another idea comes along and challenges that paradigm, you're immediately resistant to it. And this is because mm-hmm. you're constantly fed this information over and over and over. So all of this to say, I can mention some things. I can tell you vaccines are effective. Get the COVID vaccine. Still wear your mask. That's important. I personally am a fan of that because ever since I started wearing a mask, I haven't been sick since November 2019. 
not a cold, right. not, yeah. you know, a sniffle, yeah, or a flu, same. not a stomach flu or yeah. nothing. So, you know, people are going to have their opinions and be like, well, I don't think it's this, I don't think it's that. I think people need to make a practice of taking in more information that they would potentially disagree with and then seeing if there's any merit to that information and then using that to improve upon their own ideas. And that's actually a practice. And Romy, I know you've seen me mention this a lot on the internet. This is a practice called dialectics. It is an area of philosophy where you have an idea called a thesis, and then you have its opposite called the antithesis. And what dialectics seeks to do is to take the best of both the thesis and the antithesis, resolve the differences between them, and form a new synthesis, and perform a synthesis that is a new thesis that has the best of both the antithesis and the former thesis. And it's actually kind of like an infinite self-evolving thing because that new thesis you have will also have an antithesis. And so it just kind of keeps going to keep improving uh, itself. And so that's what I try to practice when having these discussions, when talking about various ideas that I always consider the possibility that the other side is correct. Um, That being said, when it comes to things like QAnon and people talking about, oh, they're tracking us with the vaccines and things like that, those are people giving in to propaganda because they have not critically evaluated those ideas for themselves. Let's just go through one of them, right? Okay. Let's take the one, um, if you get the vaccine, they're going to track you. Okay. Let's assume for a second that is true. That means that the government would have had to perfect the following. They would have had to perfect nanotechnology. They would have had to perfect the nanotechnology to a point to where it can exist in your body and not have your immune system attack it. That's one of the primary things people don't understand when they talk about, oh, they're injecting us with stuff to track us. Well, what is this thing that they're going to track you with? If they're going to track you with something, the only technology we have for that is electronic. We don't have biological trackers. We can't inject something in you and immediately track the DNA from space. No, it would have to be a form of mechanical or electronic technology that the government can actually learn. Right, like like something like that. Or, you know, your personal biometrics, something like that. It would have to, but you see, they're not going to inject you to track your face. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So in using this, uh, in using this idea, in using this way of thinking, we can come across, okay, so they don't have the proper technology to actually effectively do this on a nation or worldwide scale to millions of people and know that it would be absolutely safe and everybody, because if something, if people started reacting to this on a wild scale, you know, oh, I have, you know, they're going through metal detectors, things are going off, everybody's, you know, getting dinged at the airport. There's a lot of things that would happen as a result of them trying to track us that we would easily be able to pick up on every day. You know, it would completely and totally mess up everyone's reality. If we got injected with a substance that was trackable, electronic, and not vetted for literally every person that would possibly get it. That means that we will be able to track each other. If the government can track us, then that means that we people would find ways to track each other and stalk them. Right. Well, not to mention... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. No, it's just fine. Um, I was just going to say, I, I don't mean this funny in a literal haha way, but more like in an ironic way, but I remember watching this TikTok I was talking about this, and there was a guy that I forget if he was current military or ex-military, and he was just talking about like you know we go out in these missions and we're unable to like 
track each other and sometimes we lose teams and all that's that. All it's that like, if, if we're so into like our military and funding mm -hmm. our military, if mm -hmm. we were going to track anybody, it would start with the military so that we exactly. can do all these missions and get those things done. So why would we randomly start tracking Joe Schmo down the street because he got the COVID vaccine versus somebody that actually would be needed to be tracking because we're dropping them off in the middle of nowhere to do something. So it, it, it just kind of like what you said, like even if we try to pretend that that information was true, like there's so many obvious things there that like show that, no, but it's not though. Like it's really not true that it's just kind of crazy that people would buy into that. I think that some people would have to like stop and think for a moment to like, it kind of like what Adonis did. It was like break down the steps of like what would they would do to make this true and not just take it as uh, face value. And then sometimes I feel like it's, you know, the responsibility of Facebook because Facebook has created these echo chambers based on taking our personal data. Yeah, and that was kind of what I was uh, speaking to before, talking about those factors that social media companies do. I would just encourage everyone to watch uh, documentaries on Netflix, um, The Great Hack and yes. The Social Dilemma. Just watch those two documentaries and hear what they say about the tactics that social media companies are doing to increase their engagement. And see, that's a thing that you can also evaluate. Like if someone didn't want to believe that because... Uh, Facebook and a bunch of other companies, and they're getting uh, whistles blown on them by all kinds of people in tech, high-ranking, very, you know, people who have been very powerful in tech. They're like, this stuff is getting out of hand. You know, we've kind of opened up Pandora's box, and no one really knows or understands how to stop it because right. it's happening so much, so rare, and people are making so much money. Social media companies today have, you know, again, according to uh, the documentary, uh, have made more money than any other business in the history of humanity. They are the richest companies in the history of humanity. That, like, and there have been some really, really rich people. <laughs> so, it's you know, <laughs> and, you know, it's it's not unheard of. I know a couple people who work in tech, and they've told me, you know, if you want to make more money than God, go work for Google. Yeah, if you want to make, you know... $1.3 million a year doing advanced coding and database uh, optimization for Google. Go right ahead. You know, and it's and it's interesting to me, too, like, and I'm about to go into a completely different topic based on what you're saying, but it's just interesting when people try to make more laws and try to, like, regulate those things and making sure that everything is okay. And, you know, the instinct is to worry about your freedom of speech of, like, oh, we're going to block this and how can we take that away and you shouldn't be regulating the things that i'm allowed to say which to an extent i understand that but at the same time the word being amendment as in it can be changed um i don't think when such things were written it was originally expected that we were going to get on this social media network thing that can reach everyone and every single opinion will be put out there and like a computer will create an algorithm to show us what we will see and what we will not see so it it's not being able to adjust a law to something that we never expected would happen mm -hmm. it's, it's just <laughs> that again that's a whole other thing that yeah. I could go on the rant about 
it, I think that also mm-hmm. that when you're talking about an organization such as Facebook and Google and they're speaking to the government and the government is asking them to share what personal data and information that they're giving and they're like, wait, why do you want our data? And you know, what data do you have? And, the, you know, the, asking the government that uh, and the government doesn't is not in the business of collecting personal data of that information. That should tell you something that hmm, they may have some information that other people shouldn't know about. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't remember why I got on that tangent, but uh, all of that to say, you know, in terms of it happens <laughs> in terms of uh, at the end of the day, right? In terms of uh, the government or any corporation trying to track you, they'll just track you with your phone, the thing right, that you yeah. carry around all the time that has electronics that are trackable by the business that regularly updates, you know, is, is that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, uh, in term, that's what you were asking about before, Romy, uh, about the medical monkey, advice yeah. and like anything you want to impart on people. So, that's right. you know, <laughs> if you're going to do your own research, what, what I would tell people, if you're going to do your own research... Just vet the research, vet your sources. That's mm-hmm. one of the first things we have to do when we perform research. I'll give you uh, an example. So when I was doing my research, I was trying to figure out how to do a specific reaction. And I was looking on, I was researching the papers online, looking at different ways. Perhaps I was missing something, right? So I found a dozen or so papers, all of which had performed this reaction. And when you perform chemical reactions, you know, you start with, you know, so much of one element, you start with so much of another compound, you add them together, and you get this amount of the final product. Um, right. And you can calculate how much you're supposed to get. Now, what you, you know, now, when that amount you calculate uh, that you're supposed to get, that's something called a theoretical yield. This is how, in a perfect environment, you go to heaven, you perform reactions, you're going to recover 100% of whatever it is you make. Now, because we live in the real world, we know that's never going to be possible. So what we actually get from the reaction, you know, after everything's done, purified and measured, that's called um, the actual yield. And so in order to determine what your yield is, we do it by uh, using an idea called percent yield, where you take the actual divided by the theoretical, multiplied by 100. So your percent yields that they were reporting for this reaction were between 40 and 60 percent, meaning that if you do this right, you should get, you might get around half of a bag, give or take a few, which is, which is reasonable. So you're going through the papers, everybody's reporting to the same thing, but then I got to this paper, and these people reported 99%. Oh, that's impressive. That's incredible. How did they do that? When you go to the methods, these people did the exact same thing as everyone else. There was no difference in the application, no notes about, oh, we did this special thing over here. They did the exact same procedure. So in looking at this, you now have... Um, all this evidence of them getting between 40 and 60% and all of a sudden one person gets 99. What's so special about them? They didn't even do anything different. So chances are that value was probably inflated, exacerbated, or you know, made up for their own purposes to make the paper look better. And that kind of thing, unfortunately, happens in uh, academic research. And that's a whole other thing that we can get into is uh, academic fraud and research and the pressure on... Um, professors in academia to produce papers and publications with the research they can get grant money but the pressures to do that are very 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 high and this has caused a lot of people to engage in unethical research practices by unethical i mean you know 
fudging data, manipulating data, doctoring photos, things like that. There have been a couple of really big lawsuits at a couple of universities across the country that have resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in grant money being distributed because these people were just making up data, making up information. And that hurts the entire scientific community because other people are basing their research grants, dissertations off this stuff. And if it doesn't work, what you're saying it does, that can just put the whole field behind. Is that why that scientists use, I mean, of course, I'm thinking of, of like, checking to make sure that their research is like correct but is that why like some scientists like will go back and redo other people's studies and then they find a different uh answer sometimes so yeah you actually just hit on uh, a current crisis in academia in research which is the reproducibility crisis so one of the ideas behind research is that when you publish a paper you publish your materials methods talk about how you did it how you set it up uh your experiment uh, the values you use for the various uh, components and com- chemicals, compounds, whatever. Uh, the techniques you use in order to optimize the experiment or the final values that gives you the best possible result. You know, there's a lot of time in academic research spent on optimization. And, um, ah, crap, lost my train of thought. <laughs> the reproductibility. Right, the reproductibility. <laughs> so, so, you, so the idea is that you should be able to look at a paper and, com- you know, take their ideas from it, completely replicate the experiment exactly the same way they did it and get the exact same results. And the big problem is that a lot of people cannot do that. Of, I think it's about, of all the papers published, perhaps about 15 or 20% of them can have results that can be reproduced in other labs. Wow, that's a really that's a lot. <laughs> yes, it's it. Now, this does not mean that the people who are reporting it are wrong or that they didn't get what they got. You know, that is something that is absolutely true. They could have gotten it just the way they report it, and there are circumstances under which the other lab can't recreate it. For example, um, when I was doing my research at USF, we did a lot of cell culturing, and in the summer, we would have high rates of contamination because the ambient moisture in the air just from being in Florida was increased. However, you go to Wash U or if you go to you know Stony Brook, they may not have those problems. And it's, you know, and you know. Not that you would report contamination in a publication, but this is just that, just to say that your environment may have effects on the data that are near impossible to account for. So, you know, perhaps a researcher was doing an experiment and left the test tubes on her desk and it was really cold in the lab. That could have had a confounding effect if she left them there for an hour versus going ahead and immediately starting the experiment or whatever the case may be. Now, of course, you know, there's no way to say um, that just affects all types of data and things like that. But this is just giving reasons for the possibility as to why people cannot uh, reproduce things. But, you know, another reason is, like I said, people under pressure, they just throw things together and it's difficult to reproduce. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to something you said earlier. I personally have considered very much so going into research myself. Not not medical research. It would be more like social science, so sociology in particular. But as you mentioned, a lot of the times there's a lot of pressure when it comes to research as far as like all the things that you need to do. And you also mentioned that like there's so much information out there that you can just Google, find the research. You mentioned that you looked at different papers that other people have already done. And a lot of the times research is learning what other people have done and read 
following that process, seeing if it works, or maybe finding something new within that same research. Would you say there is a benefit or a lack there of benefits, if I even said that grammatically correct, um, of going back to school to do that kind of academic research? Or would you just say, eh, it's okay, I can, you can do your own research at home. Granted, of course, you'll have less resources, depending what type of research it is. Like, I can't cultivate cells in my house without a whole right. bunch of money and by equipment. But I just mean, like, research in general. Is it, like, academia as a career worth it? Or is it better to just kind of, like, be an armchair expert, for lack of better words, and doing research at home? Well, I think that depends. Well, first of all, let me say that academia absolutely has access to resources that the common lay person doesn't in terms of scientific educational journals, sociology, psychology, social science journals, things like that. Um, that's one of the things you, you know, your tuition goes towards is subscriptions to those journals and access to those journals. Um, that said, you can find a lot of information, summaries of those findings in those journals, things like that, as just an armchair lay person. So the idea of getting a PhD should really be centered around, is this going to significantly further my career? And I, I put emphasis on significantly because uh, as you know, I'm currently looking for jobs, there's a high value that is also placed upon practical experience. And, um, you know, depending upon your career goal, perhaps academia or getting a PhD would not be the best idea for you. Because remember, while you're in you're in school, while you're getting a PhD, and if you're lucky, they'll pay you a stipend. You know, STEM students get a, a living stipend every year. Either they have to teach for it, they get their work funded through the professor, the professor pays them to perform the research, or they write their own proposal and get a grant funded, and they fund themselves. Um, but yeah, so this is why they're in debt. This is why so many grad students are in debt is because they're not pretty much getting paid for their work slash learning. Yeah, the, um, not all grad students receive so, a stipend. And usually if you don't receive a stipend while you're in grad school, that's when people drop out. And that's the, you know, that's kind of like the thing they hold over your head. If you don't do this, then you won't renew your stipend, but you can still attend the school. So you know, if you don't get, you you may not it's get. It's almost a like academic catfishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the idea is that you know they're training you, and you're also providing a service to the university by pushing the uh, the research interests of the PI or your research mentor. So there's there's supposed to be a reciprocal relationship. You do the work, right. you get the experience. They pay you, educate you, and train you for a research product that then the uh, professor can publish, increase the prestige of the university, can write more grants, can get more funding, things like that. So, you know, it's very, it's very nice and it's, it works well on paper, but there is a lot about academia that trips up a lot of those processes and it makes it difficult for everybody involved. And there needs to be uh, a lot of reform when we talk about graduate education as it comes to the United States. Like a lot of people like to focus on K through 12 because that um, encompasses a much larger population. Right. Definitely infinitely, oh, not infinitely larger, obviously, but you know, a lot greater than people going to grad school. And so right. something mm -hmm. that gets, you know, as you go higher up, the quality of the education is undoubtedly better because not all institutions give out PhDs. So the ones that do obviously have the resources and, um, the wherewithal and the talent to do so. 
But um, mm-hmm. those levels of education, even at the highest, also have their problems, and they often go overlooked due to the overfocus of K through twelve, and then people's focus on undergrad. You know, uh, college for all things like that. But I can see that because, especially like now with the focus more so for college for all and for college to be free but when we get to that graduate level i think that people think that it's the mindset of you chose to go to graduate school so you're just going to deal with all of the issues that graduate school uh deal with which i feel like that could be a problem because then they also put universities into a certain place because they have to fix their issues uh as well and then they also have to deal with what the law says too or what gets passed um you know down uh at their state capital yeah i just know like for example i know like with florida uh, what just got passed, Brian, about the universities that they have to, um, I want to say someone will fact check me on this, but I swear, like, isn't it like an, uh, gosh, it's that now universities can even know. Be bought. What? I said you didn't even know. You're just like pretty much about like people can buy up universities or something like that. And I, and I know that sounds wrong. I know that sounds it sounds wrong. very wrong because I have no idea what you're talking wrong. about. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm going to uh, I'm going to look this up as we're speaking because I I saw it and it just sounded far fetched to me. Okay, look look it up, and I'm going to throw another question at you in the meantime. Um, I don't know if this will be the proper wording for it, but now that you're done with your research, or at least for the time being, as far as I know, what would you say was your favorite and least favorite part of being in the life of academia? And you don't have to stick with the words favorite. I guess what was no, the, I, best, I, the easiest? Yeah, no, no. I actually, this is another question I really like because, you know, to be honest, academics tend to be really jaded about academia. So, you know, asking what we like about it. <laughs> forces us to kind of consider their work and things about it. One of the things yeah. I did like about it was when I was actually able to make a big breakthrough in an experiment. When I was, you know, mm-hmm. constantly hammering away and working at a problem and it just never seemed to work. And then I found a way for it to work. There, There is definitely a great sense of satisfaction, personal satisfaction yeah, yeah, you know, and vindication uh, in those moments. So. Uh, one of the things I'll mention, so I was talking about that uh, reaction earlier. I was working on my research. I was using that reaction as a part of a new experiment I set up because when I was trying to, I was trying to make this compound as a part of my dissertation research to uh, investigate if I could find dormant forms of malaria in the liver. So I wanted to create this compound that would, you know, fluoresce or light up when it's inside the malaria parasite. And so... First, I had to make it in a chemistry lab. So that was the mm-hmm. first part of my research. And um, the first way we came up to do it, we had, you know, all these different chemicals. It took nine reactions to complete. You know, you do one, you get that product, then you mix it with something else, and then it gives you another product, and you mix it with something else, and it gives you another product. Just went through this for about, you know, anywhere between nine and 12 steps. And I got to the last step, and it just wouldn't work. And I was working on this last reaction. It must have been like two, two and a half months. You know, usually when you have problems with a reaction, it might take you about two weeks to a month if it's pretty difficult for you to get by. You know, it happens. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they work on the first try. Other times, you know, they may not work at all. And so this is one of those times where it didn't work at all. I spent, (laughs) yeah, about two, two and a half months on this. And at one point, 
uh, when I was doing this research, I had like five to seven different reactions, all of these little beakers going at the same time, just trying to hit all these different conditions to see if I can get something to hit and nothing would mm. work. And, you know, that it was actually a really low point because my PIs were like, well, we don't know what the problem is. You need to figure this out. You know, they were having right. doubts about me. And so it, it's very, it's a very sort of like, oh man, I, you know, they're doubting me. I don't know if I could do this. And then the imposter syndrome is saying, well, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not as smart right. as I thought. You know, I don't have, I don't know what I'm doing. And so. Why, why am I even here? Yeah. Why am I even here? This was a stupid idea. And so, but you push through it. And so. I went back and I hit the books and I hit the literature and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll come up with a way to do this myself. And what I came up with was actually able to cut the amount of steps by almost two thirds. So we went from doing nine to 12 steps to doing three steps. And I got it to work the first time I went through all the reactions. All the reactions went through. I didn't have a lot of problems and I got it to work in about two months. And yeah, wow. it was, and it was really like when I was finally looking at all the verifying data, like, you know, the, Everything about the molecules, right? All the atoms were in their proper positions. You know, I was able to characterize it, understand everything. You know, it was a great source of indication because, you know, my bosses were having mm -hmm. doubts about me. And then when I finally got it, you know, one of my bosses, you know, mentioned Lemmy. He's like, see, this is just what they call it, a teachable moment that you just got to hang in there and stick <laughs> with it. And, and you're going to get the research done. Yeah, and I'm just kind of yeah. sitting there, you know, with my heavy side eye, not saying anything like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were just doubting me two days yeah, ago. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, just kind of almost pushed me over the edge a couple of times six months ago. But it's okay, it's fine. Yeah, life lesson learned. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, that feeling of satisfaction was really, it was really nice. It, you know, that feeling of vindication. Also, when you're finally finished, that's another feeling of like, oh. <laughs> oh I remember, I remember you're just like, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> I'm finished. Completely done. Now, the things I dislike about academia, admittedly, are many, um, and you, I, you won't find many academics who don't share that sentiment. Um, I think the biggest thing that frustrates me about academia is the pressure. Um, and I find, and the pressure that is placed upon all these people, because remember, only like one to three percent of the population have PhDs. This is extremely hard to get, so not everybody's just walking around with this. And so by nature, we have to consider that the people who get PhDs are probably some of the most talented in our population. And there is just a tremendous amount of pressure on this population. And it causes people to have all kinds of mental health issues and things like that. Like everyone of grad students that go to graduate school, graduate school also has a severe mental health uh, crisis because grad students of those who enter um, any type of graduate school, either for STEM, social sciences, whatever, 66, well, excuse me, 99% of them will have some sort of mental health issue with a third of them having a severe mental issue, like severe depression, thoughts of suicide, things like that. It, it is a huge, huge problem. I remember I shared uh, this article that talked about this on my Facebook, I think it was like 2014, 2015, and a couple of my friends from lab texted me and called me crying saying, I thought it was just me. I didn't know anyone else who was going through this. I, I'm so glad you shared this. I don't feel alone. And, you know, it had a very powerful effect. But these are things that are affecting our graduate students every day. And it's due to all these pressures. Right. You've got to get the data. You've got to make sure everything works. You've got to make sure you get the publication in. You've got to hope that they're going to verify it. And if they don't, then you have to spend another six months doing this. And if you have to spend another six months uh, getting 
the revision's done, and that's going to push your PhD back. And when will I graduate? And everyone's asking you all the time in your grad school, when are you going to be done? When are you going to finish? Oh, can't wait to see you walk across the stage. So, you know, even though it's supposed to be well wishes and we hope you do it, it's another layer of pressure on the graduate In addition to all the pressures that uh, academia puts you on, and because the programs are rigorous, you know, you have to hit certain milestones by certain times. And then your funding is always in danger. You know, sometimes a lot of grad students are not able to finish, not because they're not competent, not because they can get the work done, but because they just lose their funding. And oh my God, that's like like just a little example. Uh, back in 2012-2013, we were having discussions about the recession. Oh, excuse me. And Obama for the sequester, right? To where if they couldn't come up with some budget resolution, a 1.5 billion dollar cut. And this was after the NIH had been enjoying a long trend of increasing grant funding throughout their time. So it's funny if you talk to people in academia from like. 97 to like 2009 or excuse me like 2007 2008 right we're gonna give you money to do whatever you want it was great everybody had a lab it was great you should go into academia you can get funded you can get funded and you got all this money and then we run into the sequester <laughs> and as a result my the lab that i had we lost two postdocs and a graduate student because the nih wow. would not renew the grants that were wow. funding their projects they ended up, and then you know, that's more work for you guys on top of that. That now you gotta do work as for two postdocs and a graduate. Well, not necessarily because what happens is that if you can't get funding for a project, the project just doesn't get worked on anymore. You don't have. Oh, so you just stop the. Where, oh, where does all the information go? In the lab books, and is kept. If there's enough, you may try to publish it, but if you don't get funding for the project, you can't. How are you going to order materials to do the experiments? Where are you going to get the money right. for the cells? Where you're going to get the money to pay somebody to do the experiments. People ain't, you know, the, the wages, you know, people say they're slave wages, but people ain't out here working for free. <laughs> like, right. uh, only the extremely privileged can be out here working for free right now. So, yeah, we, we, lost, uh, we lost some great people because those, uh, the funding mechanisms for the NIH just didn't get redone. And as you learn more about academia, as you learn more about the NIH, NSF, and the way grants are funded, Honestly, a lot of these systems are broken. The grants, the grant system is broken. The funding mechanisms are broken. Determining what school gets what money. The you know, obviously Ivy Leagues and you know the top performing state schools are disproportionately right. funded versus smaller private schools and HBCUs. And I was actually just having a conversation about this with a few of the black postdocs a couple of weeks ago, is that we need to have more um, PhD programs at HBCUs because despite everything, HBCUs produce most, HBCUs meaning historically black colleges and universities. Uh, they produce the vast majority of black PhDs, doctors, lawyers, things like that. A lot of them come out of HBCUs, but HBCUs can't get the funding to increase mm-hmm. producing those materials. And see, when you hear things about, oh, we're going to increase the diversity of this group, we're going to all about diversity and inclusion, you know, it's always kind of like a, yeah, sure you are. Because all these funds to increase diversity and inclusion usually go to majority institutions or majority white institutions. Mm-hmm. And while... Like your Harvard, your Stanford, your right, Princeton. Right, that are already going to have a huge majority population. And while, you know, you may admit maybe 50 or 60 extra black students, there's no guarantee 
that, you know, despite them being the best, that they'll actually finish there because these academic environments, unfortunately, are not the most welcoming to students of color, students and people of color. Right. That you can get an education there. You can't succeed at these places. You'll make contacts that'll get you into some of the most powerful areas in the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that from at least from my anecdotal experience, most African American students, and I can only speak for the part of African Americans, I'm not sure about Hispanic serving institutions or uh what the Asian uh population thinks about this, but I know for African American students. Um, the experience at an HBCU is something that is highly valued, and it's a place where you don't have to face one of those pressures. One of those pressures being this person being racist. You don't have to worry about racism at an HBCU, and it's an incredibly freeing and sort of um, not cathartic, but like releasing sort of feeling. Like it's 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 great to not have to worry about that, not worry about you know is my professor really racist? You know he said some sus stuff in class the other day, and everyone laughed except for me and the other black girl. Now do I have to worry about? You don't have to worry about that there, and right, you know it's really nice. But all that to say, um, these funding mechanisms need to be um, reformed and reworked such that the distribution of funds is more equitable and we can get more funds into early career professors. People have just graduated grad school or just, you know, finishing their postdocs. They want to be in academia, but they can't get their foot in the door because so much of the money is already being funneled to uh, the people who have been in academia for 30, 40 years, who have all the publications, who have all the data, who have already had the opportunity to flesh out their ideas, and maybe they don't have to retire. Maybe they can just be in academia until they die, and they'll always have a couple of postdocs and grad students willing to work for them because they're so right. established in the field. Who doesn't want oh to work? Oh, my gosh. That's such a power game. Yeah. Who doesn't yeah. want to work? You know, if Einstein were alive today, what student wouldn't want to work with him? Who doesn't want to right. work with Neil deGrasse Tyson? But if I, right. you know, just got my PhD from, in physics from, you know, Wyoming State, how, how am I going to compete with Neil deGrasse Tyson writing his grades? Right. I'm, I, you know, he has lots and lots and lots of papers, years of research under his belt. He's famous. He has all these things going on. Neil deGrasse Tyson could wave a finger and get whatever he wants from the NSF. But for, you know, right. Peter, Jacob, Hakeem, Lou, or Hakeem, or whoever, graduating from state institutions or small institutions with PhDs, they have to grind day and night with teaching loads. They still have to teach students at these places. Right. So it, we require a lot of professors to perform research, to mentor students, to teach students, to come up with research plans, to come up with teaching plans. And there needs to be some parity in the education versus the research side of institutions. I personally think that they should be kept separately. Like you should have research faculty that just don't teach and they just focus on research. Agreed. That's what they do. Agreed. And then there should be teaching faculty. And if they want to overlap, that's fine. And they should be compensated appropriately. There's, we have too much in academia of forcing professors to wear 19,000 hats when they've only been trained to wear six. Uh, that is, you're absolutely right. Because I would think in my world, like, once again, this is from my perspective, that if you want to do research, that you're just going to f focus on the certain type of research that you're going to do. And then if you want to teach, you teach, and then you teach others how to teach. And then it's the same thing like with the researching. I think that that will funnel well in terms of the organization and just how communication works. I think that will also put less stress on uh, grad school students. So I have a question that 
mm-hmm. I'm kind of ignorant about, and I, I don't know if you can tell me this because it might depend on the field, mm-hmm. but when you're doing research for your PhD, is that something that you have to do independently? Or like if Jerome and I had a very similar topic in common, we can both do the research and get like co-funding or whatever, and that we can do that together. So yes to both. Um, you are, there is kind of like this self-driven sort of idea that you must push your project. Your mentor is there to guide you, to help you, to answer questions you might have about any ideas or topics you don't understand. And that, you know, that's something we do when we have lab meetings, we'll meet with my mentor one-on-one, maybe once a week, once a month, depending, you know, what lab you're in, different people have different styles, but you know, you always meet them, go over research and they're there to guide you. But you are the one that has to go on the internet and research the papers, go into the lab and perform the experiments. And, you know, it's all just dependent upon how dedicated you are. Um, There's also a ton of collaboration in academia. Like when you're working in the lab, you know, the lab I worked in worked on malaria. And so everyone in the lab worked on malaria. Now, my project had me going to the chemistry lab then coming back to the malaria lab and doing experiments at different places on campus. Some people just stayed in the malaria lab and did all of their experiments in malaria. Some people went to the malaria lab and then went to work on another sort of disease or parasite that the lab was interested in working on. And so, you know, and so for my project, I ended up collaborating with one of my friends in the lab who worked with the mice because the stage that I was looking at was present in uh, the liver stage of malaria. So malaria has three stages, you know, it replicates mm-hmm. in the mosquito, uh, in your blood and in your liver. So those are the three life uh, stages of malaria. And I was interested in what was happening in the liver stage. And one of my friends uh, was looking at the mosquito stage. And when you're bitten by a mosquito that has malaria, they inject forms that travel to your liver. So our projects were kind of like in sequence to each other, to where you start with her, then you come to me looking at blood stages, then you go to someone else. Oh, excuse me, go to me looking at liver stages, then you go to someone else looking at blood stages. So we collaborated on a part of my project uh, that helped me look at the compound in liver cells. Uh, and then her and I collaborated on a part of her project when she needed to look at um, drug resistance in mice. And so we both published papers. We were on each other's papers. One of my other friends in the lab collaborated with her, and they have names on papers. So that sort of collaboration happened all the time in academia. And it's an, that's actually another thing that I really like about academia is that people within the community are willing to work with you and work together on these problems because everybody's looking for publications. So if you can team up with somebody that's right. about to get a paper, hey, sure, I'll help you do this thing. You can be third author. Absolutely. I'll write it up for you. You know, Maybe for you, it's like a week of work. For, for them, it's going to save them like a month. And then they can get right. the paper out. Your name is on there. Oh, yes, I have another publication. I work with such and such looking at the ideas and the research of you could talk yeah. about that to whatever extent you participate in that work. So yeah, there's a lot of collaboration and academia is really good in that regard. So I kind of figured that collaboration part, I more so meant like, can two people work directly on the same project? Not like share each other data. Oh, like, saying, I mean, like, like the same, same thesis. <laughs> like, like literally, yeah, the same thesis, but two people working on that together. It doesn't have to be independent. So, so the only way that could happen would be through a collaboration, but two people cannot have the same project. That, is a direct okay. conflict of interest. And actually that gets into the more toxic aspects of academia when where you have people who have all these grants, who have all this power, people really want to work with them. They get a lot of students who want to work with them. And one of the horrible things that some people do, you know, this is something I've heard, is that they will have five students that want to work on a project, but they can only take two. 
So they'll give all five the same project, and they'll say, whoever can give me these results gets a spot in the lab. Oh. And so it results in students competing with one another. There have been stories of yeah, sabotage. It's, it's really it, like Hunger Games, but for the lab. So, it's, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of stuff doesn't help anybody involved. It's really, in my opinion, a hazing tactic. No one should force students yeah. to compete against one another for a spot in the lab. That's, that's, it's counterproductive. Because for those who don't get the spot, they've just lost all this time of their life. Now they have to go find right. a professor. Just tell them no from the jump. Just play favorites, pick your two, evaluate resumes, and just hire people. Don't throw them in the pit and have them fit for themselves. They're trying to get out. Yeah. See, I, I didn't think of time. yeah, I didn't think of it that way, which makes a lot of sense and it sucks, unfortunately. But I guess I was just thinking back to how you were talking about like all the work that it takes and the pressures. And I think it was from a Facebook post where you said, like, oh, I didn't know that you were feeling that way. I feel that yeah. way too. I guess my thought process was if two people or multiple people can work together on the same project, same thesis, then maybe that like will help with like the mental health and like lower the feeling of loneliness. But I guess with what you just mentioned, maybe just kidding, that's actually worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the closest thing you would get is, you know, me and my friend working together because the project that we collaborated on, you know, that paper that we mm -hmm. published, I was able to put that directly into my dissertation as well as gotcha. the paper you know, that I worked with on her that was related to her project, I was also able to take that one and put it into my dissertation. Gotcha. And she was able to take whatever I wanted to. If she wanted to, she could have taken things that I did and put it in her dissertation as well. So, you know, so there is some way to say that she actually wrote portions of my dissertation because I took some things from our publication. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you give people credit when you cite, you cite right, right, right. credit. But um, that's probably the closest thing that you'll get to what you're asking about. In terms of two people working on the same project. Gotcha. Now segueing a bit, what has been one of the most most valuable lessons that you have learned from science and drug research and just academia in general? Not even being, even though like I know that you see yourself as like a forever student, but I guess just like the whole aspect, like what would you take? being a student professor postdoc and just all that like because i just felt like that your whole life has been academia <laughs> you're right you're absolutely right my whole life has been academia and it's you know it's kind of easy uh, for that to happen in some spaces one of the great things about family is that you know they're always willing to look out for you help you out so i was working on my master's well i was working on my master's in organic I, you know, was also trying to figure out if I was going to go to med school or just stay in grad school. And while I was doing that, you know, they went ahead and let me keep TAing. And even after I got my uh, master's and finished, they were like, if you want, we can allow you to keep adjuncting. Student, you have a good rapport with the students. They really like you. So you can adjunct as long as you need while you figure out your next step. And so that actually means yeah, a lot. Awesome. Like that was really awesome. And, you know, it, I mean, it helped that I was a good teacher. I was good with students. But at the same time, you know, to just go ahead and have that guaranteed sort of income while you figure out yourself and if this right. is really what you want. Because that master's was, it was a little rough on me. Like, um, the first program I was in, and, you know, people can use this as a cautionary tale. A lot of people tell you, you know, oh, yes, I'm so successful. I did this, I did that. I'll tell you, I, after I got my bachelor's, I went into the pharmacy school at FAMU, and I flunked out of that program. I was in the medicinal chemistry master's program, and I flunked out because I couldn't get out of uh 
their medicinal chemistry class. Now, there's you know a lot that goes into that, but the bottom line is, is that I didn't make it. So I transferred over back to chemistry where I knew people. You know, they were like, we wanted you over here anyway. And the first professor I worked with, you know, he was trying to mentor me. And, you know, I was not as focused as I should have been. And, um, you know, but also I really didn't have a firm understanding of what I was supposed to do. And so one day he was like, look, man, I can't work with you anymore. You're not doing what you need to do. A, B, and C, you need to find someone else to work with. So there were struggles. I had two professors two years in a row said, we can't work with you. You know, you're not doing what you need to do. And so that's when I was like, all right, I need to I need to buckle down, figure this out, get focused, and try to get some data so I can get out. And that's when I worked with my other professor and um, got a project off the ground, did a bunch of research, got some results, got something that was defendable, and I was able to finish. Um, but you know, after that, I was still unsure. Now, mind you, when I finished, I finished in two thousand summer two thousand eight. So we're right in the middle of all the bullshit of the crash. So you know, yeah. <laughs> when you were looking at job openings in like two thousand five, two thousand six, you know, front, you know, entry level programs. Yeah, come on in. You just got your masters or your bachelors. Maybe you have a year of experience. Come on, give you entry level. Program. Oh, you're gonna make fifty, sixty k. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. All the prospects look great. Once 2008 hit, all those entry-level um, job postings wanted you to have experience. They right. want you to have experience. It's like, yes, we want you to have a master's plus five years experience for this entry-level position. Grad school experience does not count. Sir, where am I supposed to get experience for an entry-level position if I can't get an entry-level uh, position because I don't have the experience? Yeah. <laughs> so, like right now, we're living in that yeah. same time again. Yeah, and... and it's yeah, I'm starting to see the same sort of things that uh, a lot of the industries I look at they want you to have some experience. Although, when you get a PhD, they count that dissertation research as experience, okay? Like that good, is because you've gone through the process of publication, things like that. Before right. the positions I was looking for at the time, which was like bachelor's and master's, you know, they knew that all these companies were failing, that they knew the job market was being flooded with people looking for work. So, now for those entry level positions, why even bother to hire a newbie and train them? We can hire somebody who's been in the field for five years. They, they're they desperate. Right. So I'll just hire you, pay you a little bit less than what you were getting before, but you'll be happy to take the job because you don't have a job. Because you need a job, right. And now we can save money on training you because you've already been in the field for five to seven years. Mm -hmm. Yay, capitalism. Great. <laughs> Love it. So good. Suck all the life out of the workers. Yeah, and, and so, you know, and it's, and it's just a problem that's pressing at multiple levels of academia and in multiple industries. This kind of feeds back to what I was mentioning about the grants and that when you cut funds in the NIH, people don't get grants. All the funding end up going to the most successful people. So the new people, the new professors, new talent who have all these bright and great ideas can't get their research funded. Like people who came in in 98 right. got an explosion of funding, were able to establish themselves. And now just get grants like that. So easy. How can you not get a grant when you have 32 publications under your belt and you've gotten three awarded in the past? As right. opposed to somebody like me, I only have two publications, a book chapter. I can't get a grant funded to save my life because I don't have the data I need or I haven't been able to flesh out my ideas because I don't have any money to flesh out my ideas. Right. That's that, 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 that vicious you circle. Have, you have to like yourself. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's like that vicious circle of like, oh, you were already funded before and you have your idea, so we're going to fund you again. But yep. you've never been funded, so I don't want to fund you to begin with. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There are definitely conversations happening in academia around those paradigms, trying to figure out how funding can be reallocated, things like that. 
that's a field called science policy that people, scientists go work in the government and try to figure out the best ways to distribute funding, best ways to educate graduate students, things like that. These are constant conversations, but they're all kind of held at a standstill because of funding, because of people entrenched in the system who don't want to see it change, things like that. Right. So there's always kind of like this push and pull between multiple power structures mm-hmm. because of the inherent nature of our government and democracy, things happen at a slow pace. Right. Yeah. It, democracy is always great until you have to make a decision and there's every polar opposite end of the spectrum yeah. <laughs> trying to fight yep. against it. So you've definitely given me a lot to think about when I plan on going further into academia. Um, but Are it, you it's ready? Good. Well, I, I don't know if I'm fully ready to jump in on it, but I definitely think it's good to hear not necessarily the bad side of it, but the tough challenges that come the the challenges that come with it because i feel like when i first look into something i just get so excited i'm like oh i'm gonna do this but i don't look at every angle it's just the excited part so hearing the challenges that come with it kind of like it doesn't i wouldn't say makes me nervous but it also like grounds me a little bit more of like what i need to look into and planning all of that so that that definitely helps out a lot uh, so I definitely appreciate everything you've shared with us, but we've come to that point in our podcast where we ask you the question that gave us our title. What are your plus and delta? Uh, remembering that plus, not that you need this because you're a scientist and an academia person, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it's a <laughs> habit. <laughs> but plus being a positive from our topic or otherwise, and a delta meaning a change you would like to see again from the topic or in life in general. One of the things I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed you all's questions. They they were really, really great questions that people in the academia don't really get asked a lot, or you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think to ask them when they're approached. So I, I really enjoyed like having the back and forth with you guys about these questions and things like that. Yeah. I like having discussions around these, and it made my brain put different things together that I don't normally think about. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like going on in my head over here too, and I really uh, enjoyed that. Uh, in terms of a change. I would like to see. And, you know, shameless plug for my central philosophical idea, I want more people to learn dialectics. I wish people would change this up, like just incorporate this as an idea about themselves. I don't care if it makes you a worse or better person, as long as you are getting better ideas and evolving your thought. As long as you're thinking. That's all I care. I don't care. If you go through all this thought and you still don't want to take the vaccine and you think QAnon is real or you think Obama is a reptilian overlord, I don't care. That's great. You did some thinking and that's all I care about. Just, mm. <laughs> just evolve the idea and push it. That's what I care about. I used to get caught up in arguments, social media, things like that, where you know, you got to change people's minds. you got to be right. But one day, a lot of people are going to realize being right isn't all it's cracked up to be. And you learn a lot more from being wrong. Mm-hmm. You learn yeah. so much more it's so true. from being wrong. So, you know, people who are always about being right and things like that, get get over yourself. Look to be wrong more. Because usually what happens when people are right, they're usually ending up being disappointed. They wish they weren't yeah. right about the things they were right about. It's funny. That sounds like a proverb. <laughs> <laughs> no, I- and I mean, I think going with that too, like something I forget where I heard it because I've heard it in different forms and in different places, but you should never be the smartest person in the room. Like you should always be looking to learn something. Like mm-hmm. it, so I don't know. I, I appreciate that because like you said, it it's our nature to try to convince somebody else 
to be on our same side and we want every, always to be right, but you definitely learn a lot more from being wrong and being open to the other side. So I appreciate that a lot. And Adonis, where can our listeners find you? Where can what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Where can our listeners find you? Through social media? Oh. Uh, <laughs> not on the streets? No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just social security number. At, at, at Times Square on Thursday nights now. Um, <laughs> uh, COVID chip number that's tracking you? <laughs> no, uh, I've actually thought about uh, doing some more TikToks. Uh, I've recently got on TikToks. I'm on TikTok at AD McQueen. I'm on Facebook at uh, Adonis McQueen. Um, also on, I think, Instagram at McQueen Adonis. So look me up. I'm open to talking to people. If you have any questions about science, research, graduate school, or what it's like to transition from academia to data science, I'm currently going through that transition. I love talking to people and I love people in general. So, you know, feel free to contact me. I'm just speaking with the people. Well, now we have learned to did and we're going to be learned back. Did. <laughs> yes, we're that's my new word. So now we're gonna be back with our own plus delta. Stay tuned. Well, that was quite the academic conversation, so... My I've brain been, has been filled. Yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot, and I don't, I don't know that I can remember enough, because it was a lot of technical things to throw out there, but I just love Adonis's excitement for what he's learned, like all his research and stuff, because I know he did talk about some of the downsides of like going to grad school and getting your PhD, because the system is kind of messed up. Um, but when he talks about his particular field of interest or just learning in general, he sounded so excited that that kept me going. I really appreciated his acquisitive mind that he thought of something when he was a kid and then wanted to explore that uh, idea. And I just appreciate that it because I think as children... We have like these grand ideas of like, hey, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a doctor. I want to be president. And then when you actually go through the steps of wanting to do that, you get discouraged. But he pushed through and he really wanted to accomplish um, his dream. So I really I really like that aspect. Now, Brian, I know that you want to go through academia. What are your thoughts now? So before I get that to that, I do want to add a little something to what you said. Because yeah. I, I think it's interesting. I forget where I saw this post or it might have been like on a TED Talk or something that mentioned that like kids, especially the younger they are, like they have such an imagination mm-hmm. and that like they're so ready to discover so many new things and learn everything. And I don't know if it's a school system or parents or society or whatever it is. But eventually that gets killed down. Like as a kid, you're like what you just said, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a president. And so many people, again, whether it's school or at, at, um, at home or in society, you get told, no, you're not. That people like take away their dreams. They're like, okay, well, I guess I'll just work in an office and something like that. Which nothing wrong with working in an office. But like all those dreams that you have as a kid, like are seen as like, eh, that's just your dream because you're a kid. It's not your real goal. That like, it's just so interesting to me and sad that that happens. But on the 
flip side, you're right about Adonis. Like, he straight up stuck with that thing from middle school and just took it straight through. So that's wonderful to see. Um, <clears throat> no, wait, 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 wait. So I was saying, because you brought, you brought up something about that's fine. how I our goals... I don't want to answer your question anyways. So no, we'll go back. I was saying, we'll go back to my question. But I... When I think of... Because you know what the funny thing is? I'll talk about, like, my dream that I want to be. Since first grade, <laughs> when I was uh, a student of the month, I said what I wanted to be when I grew up was a principal. Oh, look at you. Yeah, yeah, I want yeah, I wanted to uh, run my own school and then that definitely changed when I got into video games mm-hmm. and and then I wanted to be a video game engineer just like everyone else like, "Oh, I want to make video games." and press buttons. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just knew I was like once I actually delve into it, I was like, "Okay, I'm definitely not interested in, into it." And then, you know, full circle, I'm back. But to make the comment that you said about society and school i think in even the the home life and environment i think there that is a combination of all three and i wonder what do we say to people that deters them from their dream or what they want or i wonder what experiences that people make that they're just like, okay, I, this is not for me. Yeah, no, I just think it's like the complexities of life in general. Because, you know, like when you think as a kid, all the things that you want to be and all the things that you want to do, I feel like often we don't see the process that it's required to get there. Mm-hmm. And once you're a full grown up, for lack of better words, whatever that means, because sometimes I'm not a full grown up. Um, Adulting is just washing dishes and cleaning. <laughs> right, yeah. And paying I, bills. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just feel like there's so much of that going on. Like, oh my God, you have to work and you have to make sure that you have the money to do all these things. Like, I just think of all the podcasts that I've listened to um, with actors and they just like dropped everything and went to pursue their dream with like $10 in their bank account. And that idea for me, and I feel like society as a whole, is so scary. That when a kid says those things, that, oh, I want to be an actor, I want to be a dancer, I want to be an astronaut, but the grown-up looking at it, well, like, it costs this much, you got to spend this much time, and especially if you come from a middle-income or a low-income family, like, where you're like, no, I need you to right away start working and help me pay with these bills that the family's struggling with. I see. Mm-hmm. I just feel like all those processes slowly, like, they might still be possible, but they don't become as vi- vividly attainable. Uh, so I think that's what causes that to dwindle down a little bit. So like I know for me, I've always... The two most consistent things about me is that one, I have never been consistent with what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and then the other thing is I need almost like a security blanket whatever mm-hmm. that may mean like maybe literal when i was younger mm-hmm. to now being like oh, i need to make sure that i don't do anything super crazy dangerous because i want to make sure that everyone is safe right so i just think of like there's been times that one of my thoughts was i wanted to be a voice actor because i love doing random oh my gosh you should do that but then when I think of like, well, how do I do that? When do I have the time? And it makes no money until you get really deeply involved in it. That 
that scared me and mm-hmm. it stopped me from doing that. Mm-hmm. Or I remember I loved music and I talked in the other episodes. I still love music, but I've talked in previous episodes being in a band. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of my things was when I got to my senior year of high school and I finally did drumline instead of just playing the saxophone, which I loved. Um, I had the, in my head that I was going to do drum corps, which is like the national or international okay. competition of drum lines and that kind of thing. All right, you want to be on Stop the Yard. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I wanted to do that, but I was aware that as my first year having done drum line, there was a lot of people that were much better than me at that. Yeah, so that can be discouraging. My, my, right, so my thought process was, okay, for I'm not going to go to college straight away. I'm going to take a break, focus on just drumming, getting really good at that, and have my year or two get a chance to get a season through one of those drum corps, and then I'll go back and do whatever else afterwards. But with my family, the expectancy is like, oh, so you don't care about school and you don't care about the career, which I've had this conversation now with my family to where like we see where we like had a broken system. Right. But when I'm a 17, 18 year old telling my adult, the adult in my family, particularly my mom and my grandma, that I don't want to go to college right away, they're like, uh, no, you are going to go to college right away. Exactly. Because so, they think that they're like, oh, you're not making the best decision right. and the best choices right, right. now. Because like, it's just that scary factor. Yeah. You know? Like, if maybe if you don't go now, maybe you'll never go back. Because that does happen to some people. And they knew all the other jobs that I talked about wanting to do, whether it was a teacher, whether it was advertising, or whether it was some sort of computer engineering. Right. A lot of those things require a college degree. So they had the fear that if I don't do it now, I might never come back. So I think like all those things have almost trained me to think, no, I need to do what's best all the time and not take a lot of risks. So I think that is something that doesn't happen just to me, but to a lot of us, we're like, okay, that sounds like a great idea, and I would love to do that, but we're not willing to take that risk because we are comfortable in our security blanket. And that's why we both ended up with tens of thousand dollars in debt. (laughs) Yay! Thanks, college! That's a whole other conversation. Um... But no, going back to my question about yeah, um, I, about academia, because uh-huh. I want to go back mm. to academia, but not yet. So I want to I want to hear your thoughts. So I guess my two biggest things of wanting to go back to academia is I love research, and mm-hmm. I feel like I finally got into somewhat of a place that I know what kind of research that I want to do because I felt like I was always very jumbled about it that I would end up going to college and spending way too much time and money there while I try to figure out what it is that I want to study. So I do feel like I'm more in line to a certain path to follow. Um, But I also, like, I know there's, like, some PhD programs that you can do online, and they're technically cheaper and whatever else. But the thing that I love the most, particularly after our graduate program, was the collaboration with people. Yes. So being able to be there, talk about, even if it was theories, which I don't always agree with, but having that conversation of, like, oh, I disagree with this, it doesn't work, yes, it does work, how can we do something different? And I left our master's program with this whole mindset of, I'm going to go out there and change the world. 
that I, I just love that thought process of constantly being in an area of like-minded people. And when I say like-minded people, I don't mean having the same opinions, but people that are willing to put in the work to reach some sort of goal. Yeah, funny how you say that when we come out of college, like we want to change the world. And then I think once we go into the world, it's so much, so many things that we have to tackle yeah. um, that we have to dismantle a lot of bureaucracy or things that are within a system mm-hmm. um, that has been perpetuated for countless amount of decades and and years and i'm not even just talking about education like it can go from government it can go from even what adonis was talking about academia um in colleges and universities i think and and without going too much on the rant of my own but i feel like that's where i want to do my research because a lot of that whether you're talking about education healthcare academics or that's same education uh, government it was the other one that you mentioned which whatever thing you're talking about it all comes down to people it all comes out to the trends that people follow it all comes down to the belief systems that people have and a lot of people's belief system change but at the same time we don't like accepting that they change so I've noticed that I, I'll give you an example I feel like a lot of people see any political issue that's going now and there is a set of people that might be okay with finding the middle ground but because right now in particular we're so polarized of what it means to be progressive liberal democrat or what it means to be conservative and republican that it's almost like you're not allowed to say that you kind of side with the other people in a particular topic so you have to stick to what my group is telling me to think or believe or act on, even if your mind is not completely there. So I just, what I would want to research is how do people choose what to follow? Because sometimes, is it based on religion? Is it based on your gender? Is it based on sexual orientation? Is it based on race? Like, is it just the neighborhood that you live in? What makes you choose what beliefs you outwardly speak about? Ooh, that's that's very meta. Right? Yeah, I want to say that's very meta, philosophical. Um, something that I... <laughs> I, I, mean, I would love to delve deeper uh, into, into, but I I feel like some people just join a fan base just because they they right. feel uh, you know they feel a certain way but then as well as you you have other people who like to have reasoning they like to have thoughts and yeah. the uh, things that are scientific and research based but that goes back to what Adonis was talking about which I felt like that when reading about it, it so totally sounded like you, um, the dialectic thinking, which, mm-hmm. do you remember what that was? Uh-huh. You read it to me right before we started recording, but um, my short-term memory loss is... This is a quiz. Come on. Oh, it's a quiz? Yes. Uh, <laughs> about thinking through all your options, and I think the word that I remember for some reason, the definition you told me was identifying what was the most like fiscally plausible or economically plausible and 
something about pretty much weighing out your options and doing whatever seems like the most logical thing to do. Yes, the ability to view issues from multiple perspectives and to arrive at the most economical and reasonable reconciliation of seemingly contradictory information and postures. Because that sounds definitely like you, because I feel like that you always want to go... You want to understand other people's perspectives, but then you always want to go down to the core of what people believe. Mm -hmm. And going back to your question about how do people choose what they uh, how choose on what they believe in, I think that goes down to the core of who they are as a person. Yeah, and I feel like that that's very psychological and sociological as well, like both. Uh, regions that are put together so uh, that's interesting that you would like to research that you want to know what my research route would be yeah go for okay. it okay so well first as of right now I would love to create a probability of success for students based on their economic background based on their home life based on their uh, their abilities and what they're doing in school and pretty much like create some type of like predicted uh, outcome. So pretty much like based on what you're doing right now and in the past, what are your probability of success um, in terms of education yeah. and yeah. in public education and just specifically focusing on that and then where would that lead you to will that lead you to you know a, a going to college or that leads you to doing trade does that lead you to doing technical vocational work um going to the military so then using that to find like trends and uh data with uh within that now that's just me as and just through my field of educa- uh, education right now i that's why i don't want to go into my PhD program yet because I want to see like the other side of education yeah. as an administrator to see it with a different lens and I feel like that my research will definitely will change for mm-hmm. that but I always wanted to just have like some type of like equation and I know that hu- uh, people are not human beings right. and there's so much th- that uh, that can change, like, you yeah, know. And, and I just wonder, too, like, how those trends would change over time, too. Because yes. I, I feel like at one point, what is now considered a blue-collar trade job, at one point, those were the jobs you wanted to have. Those right. Were the money-making, high-class jobs was to do those kind of things. And now certain people would be like, no, why would you want to do that? You have to go to college and get 17 degrees right. so you can become a doctor or a lawyer. So, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how, like, whatever you come up with and yeah. then how that changes, like, how that compares to the past and how that potentially changes in the future. And then we have to define what is success as, right. as well because I don't think always success is always in terms of money, I'm thinking of success in terms of a goal. Yeah. So on that note, that brings me to my plus delta. So as far as my plus, you kind of hit on that already, but it's just between Adonis and other people like him that stick to their passions, like are 
they that's my plus they, delta okay oh. <laughs> I would say great minds think alike okay. yeah, they, they, they stick to what they want because I know a lot of us tend to change what we do based on what other people tell us and then we have almost like a sense of regret of like no I really should have done that and I think like you mentioned Adonis sticking with what he found interesting in 7th grade and just taking that and going running like that's that's amazing like sticking to what you believe in sticking what you find interesting and pursuing that for yourself um i don't think i think from the outside it might seem like it's selfish but i don't think that's selfish at all i think that that's something that we need to get better at doing um and on my delta end i actually wrote it down because i didn't want to forget how i worded it um Oh, thinking about our conversation with Adonis, there was a lot of times that either you or I asked him questions and he kept saying something like, oh, that's a really interesting question. They normally don't ask us in the PhD program this type of questions. Like, he got so excited. <laughs> and I just think academics needs to be more fun. Not just about finding the right and the wrong and completing a certain amount of work, which yes, all those things are absolutely necessary. I'm not saying they need to go away. But learning and gaining knowledge should be exciting. It should be fun. It should not be, oh, I gotta do this. It should, what? It should lead to discovery, and discovery is exciting. So I think academics should definitely start looking into more like, how can we continue our work without it feeling like work? Yeah, babe, I like that. It's inquisitive. Uh, well, I was gonna add that it was. It's inquisitive. <clears throat> I can't talk today. Yeah, oh, no, some, it's something stuck in my throat. Big words, but you can't even say that. Yeah, inquisitive. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had uh, saliva stuck in my throat. Nobody needs that many details. <laughs> well, you know, just to let people know. Yeah. Um, no, I I agree with you that people need to still wonder um, about the world and what they want to discover, and still. It's okay to have an answer or not have an answer. And I think that you you have your own journey to walk on that path. Yeah. So what is your journey to your plus delta? That well, that was my plus. Like, oh, that was your plus. I'm so sorry. No, yeah. no, 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 do such a good job of labeling saying this is my plus. Well, that's so, why I said earlier I agree with you. Okay, fine. Go ahead. That was that okay, literally. delta? Okay, all right. Just like, just... Asking me questions. So my delta is that people need to listen to other viewpoints and take valid research based on information and form their own thoughts and opinions. Not just create a fan base. Like we all have our fan bases of, you know, being a Game of Thrones fan or being a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, Jacksonville Jaguars, whatever. But I, when we are making our own thoughts and decisions on things, like we really need to look at multiple sources, look at our sources as if they are valid. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> and that there's a reliability. And I think that experiences are should be included to support your thoughts and reasoning because as a human being and as people, we have our own experiences, and that does shape our reality but we also need to take in the fact that you know what research has done it has given us uh information that we can create our own thoughts and create yeah. our own reasoning and i i i don't know like i just feel like that sometimes uh especially now 
um, best example is the minimum wage is that you know people are there people are trying to or companies are trying to find people who employees to hire and no one doesn't want to work well everyone's lazy and i'm just like well how about giving people a minimum wage and then people are like well then that means inflation everything's gonna go up i'm like bitch have you realized that things have been increasing since 1970 and you've been paying you've been getting the same amount of wage this yeah and it's so interesting that like now the labor i don't know if it's technically a shortage yet but i know there's people having a hard time hiring people I don't know if you've seen this, but both Target and Walmart are now offering to pay college tuition for people that come work for them. Well, damn, I need to do that. <laughs> right. I uh, say, like, can you pay for a PhD yeah. program? <laughs> okay, I'm a, a bad college. Program. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I definitely agree with that. And just to add on before we wrap up to something you said of, like, I, I think it's okay for people to have disagreements and to have different opinions and to no. stick to their guns with that. No. But when... I hate you. But when they're doing the research for that, make sure, again, like you already said it, but I can't, I don't think it can't be overstated, it can be overstated, or however the proper way of saying that is, that um, it's got to be valid research. Just like going on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and seeing what your one person from high school that you haven't talked to in six years posted an article of something that they had an outrage about. That's not research. That's you saw a post, you got way too excited, and that could mean in any sense of the word, and now you think that that's true. Like, if you go out there, look up for your own articles, look up for your own research, look up various sources, and you still believe something, I might not agree with you, but I'm going to understand you. But if your only resource is... Well, Juanita said, no, no Juanita. <laughs> yes. No. What What did you read? What did you find out? Not just what did your next door neighbor say. So. And that's what this podcast yeah. is all about at the end of the day is for us to gain understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's all. Don't forget to follow us, subscribe, listen. Uh, and share and tell us how much you love us yeah we're at plus delta pod on instagram twitter uh plus delta podcast on facebook um find it and again we're on spotify we're on anchor if you follow that it'll give you links to other places uh apple podcast etc 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 all right have a great day see you Bye.